Good morning, Life Bridge. Happy Mother's Day. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning so grateful to be here, so grateful to be in your presence. You are the one true God, and we just love you and worship you this morning. Father, I pray this morning as we are here with our Bibles open that you would help us to set aside every single distraction to have our hearts ready to hear. And we want to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Help us to be obedient and help us to um, be good servants in your kingdom. We just pray for Pastor Bruce. Thank you for all his preparation and help him to speak your word clearly and to rightly handle it. And we just love you so much. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, by and large, this is a phenomenal thing we celebrate today. The uh, joys of motherhood and even the thrill of parenting, and yet some days are just more challenging than others when it comes to being a mom. It's, it's kind of like the nine-year-old girl who wrote in her Mother's Day card, Dear Mom, here are two aspirins. Have a happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Perhaps that's how you feel at times in your life as a mother. And while we certainly want to magnify the role of motherhood today, we also recognize that being a mom can be filled with a a lot of anxiety. And so it's not by accident that as we continue in our series through the Sermon on the Mount that we come to Jesus' specific teaching here on anxiety or worry right here in Matthew chapter 6. The theme of verses 1 through 18, which we looked at last Sunday, is hypocrisy. In in fact, the key verse in that section of verses 1 through 18 is found in verse 1, where Jesus addresses this issue of hypocrisy and says, hey, don't be like the hypocrites when you practice your righteousness. And then he gave three examples of that, such as, uh, you know, um, uh, praying, fasting, and giving. And now we come to uh, the theme of verses 19 through 34. And it's not hypocrisy, but Jesus shifts now to anxiety. And he says in verses 25 and 31, he says, Don't be anxious or don't worry about your life. There's no need to worry. And so when you think about these two themes here in this specific section, you have hypocrisy and anxiety. And whether we think about it or not, Hypocrisy and anxiety are very closely related. In fact, the cause of both of them is rather similar. Why why do people become anxious? Well, in part for the same reason that people become hypocritical. And that is they focus on self 
rather than focusing on God. In the case of the hypocrite, as again, we learned last Sunday, the focus of a hypocrite is to be seen by others so that that person, so they now can receive the applause and approval of people rather than God. And in the case of an anxious person, the focus is to trust in themselves in order to supply their own needs in life. Both of them, both the hypocrite and the anxious person, both have a very twisted view of God. Both have an incorrect view or an inadequate view of their heavenly Father and His grace. And the cure for the hypocrite is to realize that the heavenly Father, He already knows, He already sees, He already understands our lives as His children. He loves us and cares for us and accepts us as who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't want to change you. Yes, He does. But that transformation in your life grows out of His acceptance, His grace for you. The transformation does not produce His acceptance of you. That would be merit. That would be working for His approval. And we don't do that. We are approved already in God's sight because we have the righteousness of Christ in us. And over us, the cure for anxiety, just as it is for the hypocrite, is the same. As Jesus makes very clear in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in verses 25 through 32, which we'll look at next Sunday, where Jesus emphasizes that the confidence that we can have in the Heavenly Father to provide for all of our needs. And then this whole section... It's quite interesting. It's not by accident. It culminates with the key verse in verse 33, where Jesus implores us, he says, but seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness in all these things will be added to you. Jesus is telling us, in other words, if we get our priorities right, that is kingdom priorities right, if we put the kingdom of God and His righteousness first in our lives, then everything else, that is all these things we worry about, all these things we're anxious about, will fall into place. When we're tempted to worry about food and clothing, when we're anxious about paying bills or paying for braces for our kids. We can trust in God as our Heavenly Father, and our hearts can experience peace instead of anxiety. So what does that mean, though? To seek first the kingdom of God. Because that's the question we want to answer, not only today, but next Sunday as well. And the answer is twofold. The answer is twofold to what it actually means to seek the kingdom of God. It's rather simple, but hard to practice. Not impossible to practice because we have the Spirit of God to help us do it. We're Christ followers, and we have the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the people of God to help us to do these two things. That is to treasure God and to trust God. Seeking the kingdom of God is all about treasuring God and trusting God. This morning, I want us to focus on treasuring God. Notice this. Seeking the kingdom of God means treasuring God 
more than anyone or anything else, especially money. You want to know how to kill anxiety in your life? Seek the kingdom of God. And one of the ways that we do that is by treasuring God more than anyone or anything else, especially money. And you know you're treasuring God and his righteousness when you, as Jesus said it, when you lay up or store up or invest in heavenly treasures. We're all investing our lives in something. We're all investing our lives in one way or the other. And you may not have investments in the, in the stock market or in real estate, but all of us invest our lives in something. We all have portfolios that represent what we are investing our lives in. And what we invest our lives in reveals what we treasure most. Do we treasure God and his righteousness more than anyone or anything. And so with this question in mind, what Jesus does now in this section of verses here is he lays out for us in a logical manner. He's reasoning and he's logical. In fact, even next Sunday, he does the same thing. He lays out these benefits of investing in heavenly treasure, what it means to seek the kingdom of God versus the downside of investing in earthly treasure only. So what are the benefits? Let's look at it. Let's unpack it. Number one, notice this. Investing in heavenly treasure, it guards your heart. That's the first benefit. It guards your heart. Jesus begins with a a very clear command here in verses 19 and 20 when he says, do not. Now, we all understand that, right? We don't need explanation of what that means. Jesus is telling us something not to do here. Do not, he says. Lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. And then the antithesis of that, the opposite of that is, in verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, we probably ought to stop and answer a simple question here. Well, what does Jesus mean by treasure? Well, treasure, it certainly includes money. No doubt about it. But it is far more than money. So don't think in your mind here and limit treasure in this passage strictly to money. Expand your thinking. Broaden it. Treasure is the stuff in life that we desire, we want, and work to get. It's the things we prize most dearly in our lives. As Scott McKnight says, treasure is the accumulation of things as a focus of our joy. So what is it that you put your joy in that you hope will return joy back to you? What is it you treasure most? And it's not always money. It could be things money buys. It might even be other things. For uh, some, it is, is money, material things. For others, it's their image and reputation. That's what they treasure. For some people, it's the standing and status in life. It's the applause and approval of people. That's what the Pharisees treasure. Still for others, it is their body and looks or their brains and education or it might be family. Yes, we treasure family. Even in a wrong way. And friends. And the list goes on and on. We all have things that we treasure, that we value, that we are convinced in our own hearts and minds that are absolutely essential to my happiness and fulfillment here on earth. 
But for the Christian, for the Christ follower, for one who is part of the kingdom of heaven, treasures are different. Or at least they should be. Daniel Borman writes in his book, Imperishable Treasure, the Christian lives in this world, but his sights are set on the world above. And so Borman is simply echoing the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, when he says, since you have been raised with Christ, listen, he says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. But notice something here in Jesus' words. Jesus' focus in this passage of the Sermon on the Mount is less, much less, on what our treasures are and more on the location of our treasures. So the critical question for us to think about, for us to grapple with, is where's your treasure? Jesus says, investing in heavenly treasure, it guards your heart. So notice why, though. Jesus is very logical about this. In fact, notice the points here. The treasure you store up on earth will be lost. It will be lost. Jesus' logic is undeniable when he says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You see, the problem with earthly treasure is that it is not secure. It's susceptible to the fallenness of this world. For example, the natural world in which we live where moths and rust can destroy. In human depravity, this is why thieves break in and steal things, because of sin, because we live in a fallen world. Make earthly treasures, all this, the natural world and human depravity, make our earthly treasures constantly susceptible to loss. It's a bad investment. It's not safe because those treasures are either destroyed or they are stolen, as One pastor put it, all earthly treasures are susceptible to decay, loss, theft, destruction, and deterioration. It's not a matter of if earthly treasures will eventually be lost, but only a matter of when. Now, anxiety, worry. One of the triggers for anxiety is a fear of loss. And Jesus is telling us here, That if all your treasure is invested in this temporary world, then we should be anxious. You have a lot to worry about. Because we will eventually lose it all, he says. Several years ago, construction workers were laying a foundation for a building outside the city of Pompeii. And there they found the corpse of a woman who must have been fleeing from the eruption of Mount Vesuvius but was caught in the rain of hot ashes, lava. When they found the woman, her hands were clutched to jewels, which were preserved in excellent condition. She had the jewels in her hands, but death had stolen it all. And that's the bottom line Jesus is getting at here. Earthly treasure is not a wise investment because you can't take it with you. It will be lost sooner or later. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not condemning all earthly treasure. He's not banning financial planning 
He's not banning even joyful living here on this earth and enjoying his creation. He's not saying either that you ought to, you have to, you need to get rid of all your stuff. What Jesus prohibits here is the selfish accumulation of earthly treasure in thinking that life consists of the abundance of our possessions or putting your hope in money and the things that money can buy. Jesus is condemning, in other words, the excessive focus on those things. A preoccupation with temporal earthly treasure over the timeless treasure of God's kingdom. Why? Because the treasure you store up on this earth, Jesus says, will be lost. It's undeniable. It either leaves you while you are alive or you leave it when you die. But, but, notice this, the treasure you store up in heaven will not be lost, but it will be, it will last, Jesus says. Notice in verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus counsels us to invest our treasure in heaven because it will last for eternity. Heavenly treasures, unlike the treasures of this world, are eternally secure. You don't need to worry about your heavenly treasures. Whatever you've got up there, God is taking care of it. In fact, Jesus reminds us that our treasures in heaven are not subject to ruin, rust, and robbery. Listen, moth and rust don't destroy there in heaven. Thieves can't break in and steal there in heaven. Treasures in heaven can't be touched. Why? They are protected by God himself. And so heaven is the safest place to store our treasures. Anything that we try to hang on to here, Jesus is telling us, listen, it will be lost. But anything you put into God's hands will last for eternity. Which now brings us to the heart of our treasure. Because Jesus is going to tie all this together. Notice this. Your heart always follows your treasure. And this is where we get the point of the benefit of investing in earthly treasures because it guards your heart. Jesus connects our treasure to our heart when he says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, that's not the way most of us think. We tend to think that our money follows our heart. But Jesus says just the opposite. He says, no, it doesn't work that way. Money leads and the heart follows. Your heart always follows your treasure, either up to heaven or down to earth. And by telling us that my heart follows my treasure, Jesus is saying, in other words, he's saying to all of us here this morning, show me something. Show me where your treasure is, and I'll show you where your heart is. Ultimately, what you invest in is where your heart is. And where your heart is, is what you worship. This is why Jesus is more concerned about your heart than he is even your treasure. He knows something about us that is so true. He knows that our whole lives will relentlessly drift toward the spot 
where our treasures are stored. Because our heart will take us there. This is why later on the Apostle Paul would tell Timothy to tell the church in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 and 18, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And then listen to what Paul says next in verse 19. He says, in this way, in what way? Paul's way of saying the same thing Jesus is saying, in this way of investing in heavenly treasures, listen to what Paul says, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And so both Paul and Jesus are saying the same thing. They are telling us to choose carefully where you store up your treasures. Why? Because where you store your treasures will shape your heart either toward greed or generosity. Where you store your treasures will set your heart on either this passing world or the eternal kingdom of God. The first benefit of investing in heavenly treasure is that it guards our heart. It keeps us focused on the kingdom of God. The second benefit is it guides your life. Investing in heavenly treasure guides your life. Now, I'll be the first to admit that what Jesus says next in these verses is somewhat hard to understand. We're not used to the language. We're not used to the terminology in the way in which Jesus speaks here. Notice what he says, though, again. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good or healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or unhealthy, evil even, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And so what is Jesus saying here? What's he talking about? Well, he's doing, what he's doing, he's simply giving us an illustration about the benefits of investing in heavenly treasures Versus earthly treasure. He tells us that the eye, it can be compared to the heart here in verse 21, which is the preceding verse. And much like the heart symbolizes one's affections and even their ambitions, the eye symbolizes all of one's life. In fact, the Bible, in the Bible, the heart and the eye can both refer to the inner person that sets life's direction. And here Jesus says that the body finds its direction, either for good or for bad, through one's eyes. And so if a person has a good eye, then he will walk in the light, and it gives direction to all of his life. And so if the eye affects the whole body and it impacts all of life, Jesus is now urging us to do something. He's pressing the pause button in our lives. And he's saying, you need to evaluate. You need to examine your eyes. You need to take an eye test. Are your eyes good or are they bad? What's, in other words, your perspective 
when it comes to the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is getting at here. He wants us to take an eye test. What is your perspective when it comes to the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world? What's your perspective? And Jesus is encouraging us through this illustration to be single focused in your devotion to God. Most commentators believe that this phrase, uh, the eye that is good, or what we could call a good eye, it refers to a fixed or single devotion. The idea is you don't suffer from blurred or double vision. One commentator suggests that the good eye is one that does not allow the allurement of wealth and possessions to distract him from God. Those who seek to divide their loyalties between God and money are victims of a blinding form of double vision. He goes on, he says, thus the good eye is one whose focus is fixed on God and whose vision is not blurred by focusing on two objects at the same time, God and money. In other words, the good eye is single focus in its devotion to God and it is unwavering in its gaze on the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is telling us again, he's addressing the issue of anxiety by where we lay up our treasures. And he's telling us that anxiety grips the hearts of so many people simply because it's caused by a failure to focus properly as a Christ follower. We're not focused on the kingdom of God. We're focused on the things of this world. Most of us have taken those eyesight tests. You're familiar. It's normally... The eyesight chart is held up on a wall. You either sitting in the doctor's office of the, your optometrist, I can't even say the guy's name, the eye doctor. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you're either sitting in the chair or perhaps you're standing t- 10 feet back and they ask you to read the, the eye chart. And, of course, the top of the line, you're like, got that, no problem. I can see that clearly. And uh, and so the letters are placed before us. We read down the chart, and as we do, the letters become smaller and smaller and smaller until finally we reach a point where we find C is difficult to distinguish from O. Like, what? I think that's right. I'm not sure, doctor. And although we can still distinguish it from Z, but eventually all the letters become indistinguishable from one another as we get lower and lower down the eyesight chart. When children at school take such a test, they kind of ask one another, hey, which line did you get to? Which line did you reach down the chart? And that's rather a good question to ask, even for us here this morning. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it provides us with a great test for our spiritual vision as we read through the Sermon on the Mount. Which line of it can you reach to? Which line on the Sermon on the Mount did you read all the way to? Can you read as far as verse 33 where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Or has your vision of that command become so clouded that it's lost in the worries of this world? Jesus encouraging us, take an eye test. 
You need to be single focused in your devotion to God. But number two, he's also warning us here. And he's saying, be on guard against self-deception. Jesus says in verse 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And you know what it's like to try to walk in the darkness. You stub your toe and you curse. You're mad, irritated. If your eye is bad, your perspective on life will be turned upside down. You won't see things as truly as they are. You will see, but your perspective on what you're seeing will be very blurry. You will only see the passing treasures of this world, and you will hold those up as the epitome of life, as the essence of life, as what will bring you happiness and fulfillment. And that's blurry vision. That's double vision for a Christ follower. Therefore, Jesus concludes in the rest of verse 23, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Your deception will be complete. You will have lost the ability to see life correctly. As James Boyce says, is if you are absorbed with money, you will miss everything else in life that really matters. And so the second benefit that Jesus is laying before us here this morning of investing in heavenly treasures is that it guides your life. The third benefit is that it glorifies your Father in heaven. Investing in heavenly treasure, number three, glorifies your Father in heaven. Now here in verse 24, Jesus clarifies for us the situation that we all face as well as the decision that we all must make in life. First, Jesus clarifies the situation when he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And then Jesus clarifies the decision that we are facing, that we must make in life. You cannot serve God in mammon or God in in money or God in wealth, God in whatever. That's the choice we all face. And it's really a question of who's your master. And Jesus is telling us here that no one can serve two masters because your heart can only be fully devoted to one. It's a simple and indisputable truth. No one can serve two masters. Why? Because by the very nature of the master-slave relationship, a slave can have and serve just one master. Sinclair Ferguson adds this insight when he writes in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. We should notice the obvious implication of Jesus' teaching here. We were made to have a master. God made us for himself. He is Lord, whether we think so or not. We are created in such a way that worship is an integral part of our nature. But when we turn from worshiping the Lord, we do not cease to be worshiping creatures. Instead of being the servants of the Lord, we become slaves to what God has made and even to what man has made possessions. So Jesus makes very clear to us the dilemma that we all face while we're living here on earth. No one can serve two masters. 
And he tells us why. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Charles Spurgeon is spot on when he writes, God in the world will never agree. And however much we may attempt it, we shall never be able to serve both. He goes on, he says, you can live for this world or you can live for the next world. But to live equally for both worlds is impossible. Why? Because our hearts, listen, we're not made to pledge allegiance to two masters. Divided allegiance is not possible in the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. As D.A. Carson writes, no one can simultaneously be devoted to both God and money. Only one can come out on top. Only one can be your Lord. Now, to be sure, oh yes, there are plenty of people out there that try to serve two masters. But they soon discover that you have to make a choice. It's like when I'm driving somewhere new and and I don't really know where I'm going, so I pull out my phone and I have my Google Maps giving me directions based on the latest maps and as well as live traffic conditions. It's a great little tool. But beside me, I have Darla giving me directions based on, well, let's not go there because it's Mother's Day and I love my wife. And at some point, I have to choose. I cannot follow both Google Maps and my wife. I have to make a choice. And we all know that there are consequences attached to the choice that I make. And so Jesus is very blunt here. You have to choose who you're going to serve. God or money. You can't listen to both. You cannot live for both. Which one will rule your life? And the answer to this question will determine the direction of your whole life. Now, in case you're wondering which master is better, which one should I serve, there's no choice in that. It's so easy. God is the better master. God is the better master because God is both gracious and good. Jesus is saying that whatever we worship is actually our master. Why? Because we obey what we worship. And the question is, who's the better master, God or money? And again, God is the better master because as your heavenly father, he is good. Listen, where money and material wealth fell and fell miserably to ultimately satisfy you, God promises us ultimate fulfillment in his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 10, 10, that the thief who's personified as the devil, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus promises us a fulfilled life. Earthly treasures, yes, they may bring a temporary happiness, but they are only temporarily enjoyable. But Jesus is ultimately good, 
and ultimately satisfying. And so God is the better master because as our Heavenly Father, He is good. But, oh, I love the second point here. God is the better master because as our Heavenly Father, listen, He is also gracious. Money is a cruel taskmaster. Money is an unforgiving master. As Del Allison writes, money, once it has its hooks in the human flesh, it will drag you wherever it wills. God is better because he is full of grace even when we fail to serve him and instead choose the treasures of this world. And even then, God the Father stands ready to forgive, ready to receive you back, ready to extend his grace to you. God is the better master because he is both good and gracious. Only he, Jesus is telling us, is worthy of our allegiance. To paraphrase pastor and author Tim Keller, If you don't live for Jesus, you will live for something else. Everyone has a master. But if you live for the master of career and you don't do well, it may punish you all of your life. And you will feel like a failure. If you live, mom, for your children and they don't turn out right, you could be absolutely in torment because you feel like a worthless as a person. But if Jesus is your center and Lord and Master and you fail Him, He will forgive you. Your career can't die for your sins. Money doesn't die for your sins. Everybody has to live for something. Whatever that something is becomes Master, whether you think of it that way or not. Jesus is the only Master who, if you believe in Him and receive Him, will fulfill you completely, and if you fail Him, will forgive you eternally. Make no mistake. Leave here knowing something. Leave here with truth, gospel truth, that God is the better Master because as the Heavenly Father, He is both good and gracious. On this Mother's Day, let me end with a question for all you moms here. Moms, who or what is your greatest treasure? Who or what is your greatest treasure in life? Moms, your greatest treasure is not your family. It's not your kids. That is not your greatest treasure. It's not even your home. It's not anyone or anything else. Your greatest treasure is Christ. He is the true and ultimate treasure. And so moms, when you are feeling anxious and weary, know that Jesus is my greatest treasure. Jesus graciously and compassionately reminds us to come to him. Moms, listen to Jesus' invitation in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, where Jesus says to you, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Trilla Newbell writes, 
In fact, she's one of the authors of the insert and one of the inserts in your bulletin. And so I'm quoting what she has in that insert here. Listen to what she writes. She says, it is difficult to enjoy the freedom of salvation, the joy of motherhood, and the gift of children when we are weighted down with burden. We need the transforming work of the Spirit to open our eyes to the truth that Jesus can and will carry our burdens for us. So today, man, ask your Heavenly Father to prove himself faithful. Ask him to lift the burdens you've been carrying. And may you seek to treasure him above and beyond anything or anyone. Remember, moms, when you're anxious and when you're weary, turn to Jesus Christ as your greatest treasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that our eyes are often cloudy. And that our hearts are fixed on the treasures of this world. And so, God, we come to you as our Father asking that you would put within us a hunger to seek after your kingdom. And to invest in heavenly treasures more than the earthly treasures before our eyes. We're asking you to set our gaze on eternal things. And Lord, in a culture that idolizes earthly treasures, let us see Jesus as our greatest treasure. We pray this in his name. Amen. As the instrumentalists play through a chorus, a song, let me encourage you to go to the Lord in prayer. To beseech the Lord as your greatest treasure. To confess where you have fallen short, but at the same time to receive his gracious forgiveness. And his power to live out and to seek out the kingdom of God.